Hello everyone, we're playing a best of show today featuring LGBTQ pioneers to continue our fundraising effort to support Open House SF. You're listening to the best of the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now your host, Michelle Miao. It's Michelle Miao. You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Happy holidays and uh, Merry Christmas soon (laughs) to each and every one of you who are celebrating. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, and I just, I want to throw it out there. I'm sitting here in the studio. It is technically Tuesday. We're taping a bunch of interviews before the holiday break. Um, uh, So, as you know, on Tuesdays, our good friend John Zipper of Commonwealth Club joins us. So, John, welcome to the program. Hello, Michelle. Hello, everybody. Um, And uh, I say that, I gave that disclaimer because this show that we're taping right now on a Tuesday is actually airing on a Wednesday. Oh, my gosh. So, let's just pretend it's hump day. It's time travel. It's (laughs) Uh, So, happy holidays to you. Do you celebrate Christmas? Yes, ma'am. And are you all prepped? Are you ready? What are you doing? Uh, we are going to some friend's house down in, or the house of a friend. They'll be there too. I mean, we're not crashing their house. Um, <laughs> and we'll have Christmas dinner with them and their family. Wonderful. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I just wonder when gay people celebrate Christmas, what are there any gay traditions or gay things that you do during Christmas? Not that I know of. <laughs> gay and Christian, it's not different than being Christian and straight, I guess. Um, yeah, though I know plenty of Jewish friends who celebrate Christmas, so yeah, it's people are yeah. doing all kinds of different things for it. I know. Uh, well, my family does celebrate Christmas, and we we're do so you diverse. Do something particularly gay? Um, no, but if you count karaoke, then yes. Oh, no. <laughs> but I think that's you know a, a very celebrated activity by lots of Asian Americans. <laughs> okay, <laughs> trying not to stereotype, and uh, if you're offended, I'm really sorry about that. Um, but, uh, my, but my family absolutely engages in karaoke tournaments. Um, and, and like I was you know, saying that we absolutely are diverse. And so we have Christians and we have Buddhists and we have, um, you know, unknowns. <laughs> we all come together and we do celebrate. So it's Sounds going like to be fun. It's going to be very fun. Um, thanks for joining us today. As you know, we're continuing our special partnership with Open House and LGBTQ senior resource organization and they provide resources uh, such as housing, such as community programs to the senior community here in San Francisco. And this holiday season, instead of doing our usual interviews, I, I felt that there was a need to focus on LGBT senior issues, especially during this time in which everyone thinks, you know, everyone goes home to a family or goes uh, with to friends or to uh, corporate parties. That's not always the case. And also because I truly, truly believe that we should not forget our LGBT pioneers. Um, lots of the interviews we've been conducting have been from fascinating um, individuals in our community. So please support LGBTQ seniors and their the issues that they face and make a tax-deductible donation or consider making one uh, by visiting openhouse-sf.org. Our guest today is Libby McLaren. Libby, welcome to the program. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much. Yeah, great. I, I, I you know, I, I always open up these uh, interviews. I've only done like four, but, um, but when we, it, it's truly all about you this morning. I hope that that's okay with you. <laughs> sure. 
after. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's start by um, your childhood. Where did you grow up? Uh, born and raised in Berkeley, California, which was an awesome place to be. Yeah. And, uh, I was born in 1955. I'm 60 now. And um, so... I was around during the whole People's Park, and uh, I'm the youngest of three kids, and so I had older siblings who were very involved in Telegraph Avenue and People's Park, and um, turns out my dad was uh, a politician and um, was elected to the Berkeley City Council 10 days before People's Park, and um, that was not only enormous for the city of Berkeley, but it was also enormous for me because he was a Republican, and uh, he changed ultimately to become a Democrat, but at the time it was pretty pretty intense, so um, it was a wild and crazy childhood living in Berkeley, that's for sure. Wow, how do you think that affected you and, and made you the person you are? <laughs> oh, it, it uh, thank you for asking. Um, it really did have a big effect on me. Um, it, it drove me uh, for many years as far away from politics as I could get. Uh, I saw the kind of what I thought the reality of it all is, which hasn't changed much really in, in time. Um, now I'm interested in politics and, and, you know, after I came out and um, really embraced the, the importance of the politics and the, the um, walking my talk and talking my walk, um, a lot of that changed. But as a kid, you know, as, as a middle schooler, I was really uh, horrified at how silly and stupid and petty it all seemed to me. And <laughs> And violent also. And so uh, it, it threw me threw me into a loop of I don't care for a while. And um, in that time, I started to notice um, the things that really did matter to me. And so it took me a little longer to come out than high school, say. Um, I definitely started identifying with more of the fringe, quote, fringe element of my friends and people. Um, at, I went to Berkeley High School, and, and so that was really important because I think, one never knows, but I think if I hadn't been exposed to that odd, extreme um, Republican-Democrat here in this beautiful city of Berkeley going kind of bonkers during those, those days, um, I don't know if I would have, have, have explored that outside edge of um, how important that outside edge was and how further out that edge actually existed than, than you know, kind of the core of what you hope to hang on to in high school with your friends and your, your people realizing, oh, my God, there's so many people out there, and if they stay quiet, they may not be noticed. And uh, that was that was a huge realization for me at that time as a young teen. Now, when did you get in, interested or involved in music, and, and what, what did that mean to you as growing up? Um, that was something I always did. I always knew I'd be a musician. I always knew. I mean, I played the piano you know, as a kid and took lessons and... Um, uh, then I went to college at San Francisco State so I could study music. Uh, then I went to school in New Jersey um, at a school that didn't specialize in music, which was my plan, so that I could take the train into New York City and study with um, some singing teachers and piano teachers there. So that was kind of a, my ploy to go to a school that didn't require much from me so I could do my the heavy hitting in New York and then take the train back to school is how that worked out. Mm -hmm. Um, but music always, um, and I uh, was involved in music here in, in Berkeley and then moved to New York for uh, 10 or 11 years um, with a band that I was in and at, at that time uh, came out and got more involved in music that was more women's music, which is what it was called back then. And mm. So, yeah, so forever, uh, music always. I, I'm wondering, you know, in terms of uh, coming out and your background in Berkeley and in music, uh, what was dating life like? 
Um, <laughs> uh, not a problem. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, kind of in short, uh, it was, you know, I, I, I'm thinking, oh, uh, good question. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, in fact, not, not a big problem. Um, it, uh, when I lived in New York, uh, I, I, I guess I, I'm, I'm kind of chuckling over here because uh, the, the bands, you, you know, when you're when one is a musician, you, you take the gigs that you get and, and someone from a cool band wants you to be in their band and you, you have to audition and you get to go on the road and do all these things. And at that time, when I lived in New York all those years, um, I did a lot of work in, in jazz and um, not necessarily in women's music. So I was often on the road with bands. I was the only gay person. Everyone would be straight. And um, so that, that was kind of good news, bad news. You know, uh, sometimes not so much fun, um, just saying, you know, I mean, I, I, I got along, I'm a, I'm a happy gal, I, I get along with people, but um, sometimes it was great because clearly I was the only dyke in the, in the band, and so, you know, the, the women would come backstage, and so that, that was kind of fun. Um, <laughs> you know, it was sometimes complicated, but, but in short, you know, not really a problem. I, I, I grew up in a family um, with my uncle was gay, I had a great aunts who were both lovers and gay together and you know I had a I had a very supportive family situation when I came out my dad was like oh you're going to tell us that you're coming out and you know before I had even mentioned anything so so I, I had a little bit um, more of an easy uh, situation along those lines than maybe other people did and because I'm a musician an artist I've always been a little bit like I was saying fringe a little bit and so that wasn't an issue that was okay for me. You mentioned jazz, of course. What other musical influences did you have, and what did you love listening to as a kid, and what really spoke to you? Ah, uh, yeah. Well, um, I really, being a California gal, I really went for the uh, Judy Collins, Joni Mitchell, uh, kind of folk folk rock. Um, I'm a pianist and a singer, you know, pri- primarily those two instruments, and so um, it was real big stuff for me to listen to someone like Joni Mitchell or Judy Collins, these women who are singing their brains out. The, the funny thing is that Laura Neuros, well, she was back east, and so I never, <laughs> you know, evidently the United States was very wide back then, <laughs> and things that happened in the east didn't seem to travel west, or, or so I seem to recall, and um, so I didn't get a hold of her and her music until I actually lived in, in New York, but th- th- to be more specific in the answer, I really went for women who were singing, women who were, uh, whatever style it was, didn't quite wasn't the criteria for me, whether it was Billie Holiday or Joni Mitchell. The point was I was listening to women who are expressing themselves and telling their story so beautifully. Um, so I, I went for I went for women who were doing music, um, and it, it, jazz was really big for me. I, I, had a, uh, I have a knack for understanding it, and I, I loved it, and I still do. And I definitely still sing and play jazz. And, and then when I moved to New York, I got way more um, involved I dove deeper into folk and folk rock and Celtic and traditional music, which is still remains the big uh, style of music all these years later that is my my number one, uh, maybe something that people know me for, or um, my partner who is, is now my wife, Robin Flower, and she was in women's music for a lot longer than me, um, way before I jumped into it, and through her learned a lot about traditional music and women's music and how they kind of inter- interweave amongst themselves. So, and, and was all that 
were a lot of those influences there? I mean, the late 70s in New York, I mean, musically, it was just kind of a wow time. I mean, there was, was. so much and, going and I, on. Right. I went there in 1977. Mm-hmm. So I was right in the thick of it, CBGB, thing, oh, oh. and, you know, the police were coming to play right around the corner, and, and it, was, it was an amazing time. And, and it kind of felt like the whole world, you know, the, the, I, mean, I mean, this is so, um, uh, I, I have to laugh at myself. In my world, it felt like the roof was coming off of the houses and everything was available and it was all good. Mm-hmm. And whether it was women's music or rock music or this music or that music, you know, punk was just beginning to happen. I mean, it was all kind of exploding. And I get it that it was my time and I was in my early 20s and it was, you know, I mean, I just, I just fell in love with all of the music and all of the things that everybody was doing. So maybe 22-year-olds are experiencing that exact same thing now, which is, of course, our hope that we've, you know, kind of laid the groundwork for kids coming in behind us. But mm. at that time, I was I was just really, really excited to be able to uh, be who I was, who I am, and um, that it was all good. Mm-hmm. It was a very, very, it was kind of like a renaissance time, you know, yeah. and, I, and people often refer back to, oh, those late 70s, those 80s, they were amazing. Well, let's all also remember that it was right in the early 80s that we started realizing that our friends, our gay male friends, were starting to get really sick. Right. And that, you know, I, I think these things are literally back to back with each other. Um we had an amazing time in the 70s. Everything was exploding around us. We were free and able to do what we wanted. And women's music was wow. And everything was amazing. And then all of a sudden it wasn't. And at, at that time, uh, you know, I'm, I don't mean to leave this interview and I apologize. No, no. I, we want it to be as, but, as raw and organic. The point of it is okay, to also you. tell, you know, the younger listeners what life was actually really like um, before your time. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, okay. I love yeah. that. Um, in uh, I I became part of a uh, two-person duo uh, called the B Beat Girls. Um, my partner is called Cha Cha Da Vinci. She lives up in Toronto now. Um, but um, at the time, we both lived in New York, and we we got together one day with a, a recording engineer, a friend of ours, and we wrote out this tune, you know, for the same man, which was very funny, the, the, the point of the song being, you're only hungry when I am for the same man, and I, of course, had come out just recently, and this was rather hysterical to me. Um, nonetheless, the song came out, and it became this big disco hit, and this was the summer of 83, which was the first summer and the beginning of um, a lot of AIDS, uh, which, of course, we called gay cancer at the time. Um, it was just beginning to happen, and men were just beginning to get sick and go in the hospital. And this was, it was a wild summer because it, it really is the, the line in the sand that ended the free, I mean, it did not end it, but it was the beginning of the end of just free sex and free everybody, sleep with anybody, however many people, it was all good. And it, it suddenly became not so good. And, um, that was huge because I was now somebody in the disco world um, because it was a disco song and it was a, it was quite a you know at the time it was a big deal. I walked down the street and there was a song playing on all these boomboxes, you know, and and a boombox for those of you, uh, it's a huge <laughs> tape recorder, huge, huge, huge. It was so big you would need to carry it upon your shoulder, and it was loud and. Um, 
that was that was quite an experience to have that and to go from the absolute zeal and crazy lifestyle of that we all had prior to that time prior to 1983 and then all of a sudden it all started to change and you know we we found ourselves going to a lot of funerals and mm. um, you know many many funerals a week it was a, a very different time and trying to hang on to the the zeal uh, you know and that's that's a good word for that because it was a crazy time and i was not in san francisco i was only in new york at that right. time and so i don't really know what was happening in this particular area but um probably a, you know a little bit of the same thing but libby we're going to take a quick break uh, but when we come back i want to continue the stories of your life and we'll pick pick up in the 80s and beyond when we come back. So don't go away, okay? Okay. The Michelle Meow Show continues right after this. You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Meow Show. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Babe. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. It's Michelle Miao. You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome back and happy holidays and Merry Christmas to all of you who are celebrating. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Our good friend John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us today. And during this holiday season, uh, we're producing a, a program in partnership with Open House a nonprofit organization right here in the San Francisco Bay Area that services LGBTQ seniors by providing resources on housing and community programs to uh, enrich and empower their lives. And so part of what we're trying to do here is is to, to basically highlight some pioneers in our community, the LGBTQ community, and so that you'll never forget uh, our history. And uh, also in looking in the future, you also never forget that we are all aging. And those, so those issues will all be ours. And so our guest today is Libby McLaren. And I'm going to throw this out to John because John has done some extensive research <laughs> about Libby and her uh, musical career. So, John, take it away. 
Uh, Libby, I don't know how extensive my research was, but uh, we were just talking about the the B-Beat girls. And did I read correctly? You worked there or you had an opening act uh, with Madonna. Who was Madonna? Yeah, she was. What was she like at that time? Um, Let me think. Uh, I'm going to circle around this for a minute and see if I can come up with a good answer for that. Um, We were really popular, Mm -hmm. um, the B-Beat girls, and we had the big hit that summer. Of 1983, uh, all along the East Coast, it was it was really fun. We'd get picked up by a limousine. I mean, again, I was uh, in my young 20s. You yeah. know, this was quite a big deal for me here. Um, pick up with the limousine, and they take us to Atlantic City or somewhere up, you know, Connecticut or New York. You know, wherever it was, we were we were definitely um, having a, a a good time of it. And they wanted to put in this this new singer. Um, named Madonna to be our opening act. Uh, she had a new song that was going to come out called Holiday, and we thought, you know, oh, that that isn't that nice, you know, that's great. <laughs> and she'll be our opening act, and and she was. And um, we we all know that she uh, passed us in, in the uh, fast track and went <laughs> went on to become Madonna. Um, at the time, she was young and inexperienced, and um, she <laughs> she used to kind of sit and watch us. Uh, do what we do. Now, I just want to be clear on this. The, the, the two of us who were the BB girls, Cha-Cha was the super sexy, super awesome dancer, super amazing, you know, kind of, she could do everything. And I was the musician in the group. And so we, we were very clearly defined on that. I don't call myself a dancer, and I never did, and I never will. And she could, Cha-Cha really can dance, and she could really dance. And so we would see, we would see Madonna kind of backstage, like, trying to do the moves and trying to do the thing. And, and I, I, I still swear forever and ever that Chacha Da Vinci is the person who influenced Madonna to be the person that Madonna is. Um, she does dances like Chacha. It, it's kind of an amazing thing. That, that, that's a bit of a circuitous answer uh, to the question, what was she like? She was friendly. She was competitive. She did not like being the opening act. She definitely wanted to be the, the superstar. And I believe that she actually had a good vision on that because that is all that she became. But at the time, she was just kind of a, she was a newcomer on the scene, and, you know, whether she was good or not, eh, you know, she was trying her best, and, um, you know, clearly she clearly she had something going on. So. Right. Well, talking yeah. about your interest in, and, and involvement in women's music, do you think she took it then in, in a different direction, or do you, do you, you know, do you think it differed kind of from what you, you and, and other folks have done with it? Because obviously she became an icon. Oh, she took it in a completely different direction yeah. to me. Yeah, that, that, that's a really astute question there. Um, uh, let, let me think how to answer this um, clearly. I think that women's music was very involved in the politics of being a woman and the politics of change. And I, I though I had met, I have talked to, and, and even in future years I have been in situations, Warner Brothers records, this and that, with Madonna. And so, I, you know, she if she came to the door, I would know who she was. She wouldn't know who I was. So I don't mean to present this differently than it actually exists. However, in terms of your question, she hers was not a political pursuit. Hers was, I want to get famous, I'm going to get famous, I'm going to be a freaking superstar, watch. And that's where she went. I need so. to have that kind of attitude in my life, <laughs> whether that's gardening or doing something. I'm just, yeah, I'm right. going to be a superstar. Yeah, um, I'm going to be a superstar, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, oh. she took it in a completely direction, different direction than what women's music would be. I would never, I would never even think of her as being women's music. 
I uh, I, I want to bring it back to when you came back to the Bay Area, and also I, I mean, I have two questions I want to throw out to you, um, and uh, you know, and that's the fact that women's music also during the seventies, eighties was also political, and even political right now. As um, if you're reading up on you know the women's uh, music festival, the Michigan Music Festival, right? Um, there's a you know politics there, and the, uh, the term even feminism has changed um, regarding the inclusion of even trans women. And I just thought maybe kind of what that meant to you, as you'd mentioned earlier, you got into politics as well, and how have how has your politics changed, and did it change when you came back to the Bay Area? Um, no, it didn't. Um, in fact, if anything, it just became more so because here is a more politically active location than New York City, per se, or at least who, who I who I hung out with there versus who I hung out with here. Um, I think that, um, let me think, right now is a beautiful and wonderful and a renaissance time um, in, in our, in the evolution of gay politics you know, gay people, the, the whole LGBTQ. I mean, it's it's an amazing time. And as a as a kid, as a youth, um, I hope that things are so much easier than they ever were before. However, bless their hearts, they definitely they being every new generation, certainly our generation, and every everyone in front of us and everyone behind us. Um, you know, pushing the boundaries, which um, is part of the fun and part of what a generation gets to do. And I look at these generations now and I think, oh my gosh, would my grandmother be amazed? You know, just, you know, you finally, you think, oh, long hair, that's a horrible thing. And then everyone gets used to long hair, so it's no big deal. And then it's tattoos, oh my God, tattoos. And then it's, oh, piercings, oh my God. And now it's transgender, oh my God. And and you think, you know, it's, it's uh, I, I hope that our generation has, um, and 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 who we learned from, and and who we pass it on to, um, it, into the future. That everyone um, realizes there's a lot of work that has gone into making available what is available, and making things safe to be transgender, or you know, in the process of of you know, literally changing your body to become a different kind of person and, and a different gender, and and all of the politics that go along with that, and the absolute necessity of someone of my age to be welcoming, open-armed, loving. Um, it's so easy to be kind. And if there's anything that any of us have learned, I hope, it's that it really is easy to be kind and to be welcoming and to say, you know, where are you coming from? And and, and who are you? And where do you see yourself going? And that's, that's part of the joy of being a, a little bit kind of an older person as I look at kids in their 20s and, and talk to students and friends and, and children of people that I that I know that, you know, they're out there exploring their own thing and stretching their own boundaries. And I, and I say, you know, go for it. Um, the politics here are more active and more deep for a reason. I, I don't know, maybe just because it's California than it was in New York, but certainly coming back here, um, my politics didn't change, but perhaps the, the prevalence of the ease with which to talk about it and to be exposed to and go to mm-hmm. speeches and, and concerts where politics are talked about. I mean, that that's different for sure. But now I just feel like things have, have really leveled out. Playing field is a lot more even, and maybe that's just because I, I don't care um, if somebody doesn't like 
me or what I do. I mean, I think there comes <laughs> there comes this point where it's like, yeah, okay, so you don't, I don't care what you think. <laughs> and and when you know when you're in your twenties and you're seeking and searching, you know, you're busy trying to figure out your your path and. You know, you can't tell someone who's younger, you know, like, just don't worry what they think. Because, that, yeah, that's a, that's a natural evolution. But I think in terms of politics now, you know, you do what you do, you say what you say, you believe what you believe, and if somebody doesn't like it, well, okay, you know, that's fine. Well, speaking of someone who likes you, I mean, can we take it to the personal then and tell us how you met your wife? Oh, sure. Uh, she is Robin Flower, and she is uh, an, an amazing um, musician, writer, uh, songwriter, uh, instrumentalist, uh, guitar, fiddle, mandolin, singer. Um, she hired me to come in. I had just moved uh, back to this area, and uh, Robin was working on an album, um, and she hired me to come in and, and do some vocal coaching. And, um, well, there you go. You know, there you uh, go. <laughs> there, there you go. About a year later, we... we uh, had a situation where we kind of started dating, and um, that was that was really fun, and we've really been together since. She from from the time, let, let me circle back. From the time when she hired me, we started doing music together, and one of the things that I'm happy about is that we we connected on a musical basis as musical peers, as musical uh, inspiration for each other and challenge for each other, and it wasn't until after that friendship and musical connection happened that we fell in love. And that was a long time ago, you guys. <laughs> like, like 28 years. You well, know, congratulations to that. And uh, unfortunately, Thanks. we've run out of time. And um, I, I wanted to circle back to the fact that, uh, you know, we want to make sure that people remember people like you who've contributed so much to our movement. Um, Thank you. you know, what are your, what are your thoughts in terms of the future, in terms of uh, you mentioned it's a renaissance uh, time or period for us as queers, but is there anything that you're worried about when we think about the future? No. I have incredible hope for the future. I have I have hope in the generation that is in the 20s. I have super hope for the kids who are in their 30s. I think these are some awesome, awesome, really dedicated, really brave people, men and women, and all uh, who we are. I think our generation has done an outstanding job of paving the way of, like I say, kindness and inspiration, and I think the people behind us are coming into, there's, it's always work to do, but I don't care who you are, you're always, there's, there's work to do no matter what mm-hmm. you are, you know, gardener or singer, and um, I just think that I have enormous hope for the future. I, I am not, I'm not worried about anything more than I ever was, you know, I mean, one worries about our future, I suppose, but, but I think the kids and the, um, the, the generations behind us are awesome. They are smart. They're articulate. They're they're curious. They are not afraid. They just go for it. And I, I have all respect for for the future, for the kids who are in charge of, of us as they get, become our age. Libby, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. It was so special. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Bye bye. Bye. Don't go away. The Michelle Miao Show continues with more interviews of fascinating people, especially from the LGBTQ senior community, or I should say our pioneers. So don't go away. You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Miao Show. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years, and uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. 
It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for Spotlight you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. It's Michelle Miao. You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome back. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas to those who are celebrating in just a day or two here. Um, during this holiday season, we are producing a series of interviews with members of the LGBTQ pioneer community, I should say. And that's in partnership with a, a, a nonprofit organization right here in San Francisco, Open House. Open House is a resource to the senior community by providing um, housing and community programs. And so if you're thinking about making a donation to a charity, I would like to say that you should make one to Open House uh, by visiting openhouse-sf.org. And uh, what we're doing here is producing a series of interviews. And uh, our next guest, I am incredibly honored to have this person here with us today. So I'd like to welcome Pam David. Pam, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be on your program. Uh, I mentioned that I was extremely honored, and I should do you more justice by saying that you're the executive director of the Walter and Elise Haas Fund, uh, which is a foundation whose mission is to build a healthy, just, and vibrant society in which people feel connected to and responsible for their community. And the foundation has been around for quite a while. 60-plus years. <laughs> That's it's, actually, right. it's actually as old as I am. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'm almost like, a, you know, I, I don't know where to begin. I have so many questions, but I guess I'll open up with something very general. And we're trying to get to know you and we're trying to tell your story here. So why don't you tell us about your childhood, you know, where you grew up and, and what that was like? So I grew up in a suburb of Chicago, Highland Park. It's a heavily Jewish suburb. And though my parents weren't religious at all, um, you couldn't grow up there without developing a strong sense of cultural identity and social responsibility. Um, I organized my first 
political activity as a freshman in high school around the right to wear pants. <laughs> um, really, really hard to imagine that. That's it is. I'm like, what? I think we're both shocked, really. John and I. And then I quickly moved on to uh, doing work against the Vietnam War and to lower the voting age to 18. In many states, it used to be 21, but you could be drafted when you were 18. And it seemed patently unfair that 18-year-olds couldn't have a say in the politics of the country. So I got, um, I got politically oriented pretty early. It was the 60s, and I am really thankful that I came of age in this period of great social movement. It's really shaped my life permanently. Um, and, uh, and I hope that it happens again. Uh, you, you mentioned Chicago, and of course today Chicago is known as this huge behemoth liberal city. But back in the '60s, I mean, that was the original Richard Daly and the you know very uh, you know the racial and 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 uh, and other sorts of of politics were very conservative there. Um, was that did that help form you and what you what how you know the issues you took on and how you did you you fought them, or do you think you would have kind of gone the same route no matter where you lived? It's hard to know. I had I really got to. Um, there were a couple of things. One is I was a I was a major tomboy and jock and became a competitive tennis player as a kid, which got me out of my own environment and into many others. Where, for example, I really experienced anti-Semitism for the first time. Because you grow up in a Jewish community, you don't feel anti-Semitism. You go into a waspy world and you go, oh. People don't like me just because I'm Jewish. Um, it's also, I had the opportunity to be part of discussions with kids from other parts of Chicago, in which, I mean, to be really honest, I came to the realization that what I had in life was an accident of birth, that you can be smart and funny and talented and all sorts of things, but the opportunities that you had were a lot constrained by the family and community and income level and race that you're born into. So I think it was a period in which I became very conscious of the racial divide in this country, and particularly in terms of black and white relationships. Uh, Michelle Miao and John Zipperer, we're speaking with Pam David, who is the executive director of the Walter and Elise Haas Fund. Um, Pam, you have an... (laughs) An extensive career, a political of, of uh, career and being active in the LGBTQ community. I mean, just to kind of give our listeners um, some insight. I mean, you came out in 75. You're part of the Bay Area's progressive lesbian community. You were in the Lesbian Rights Alliance. You're the founder of the Lesbians Against Police Violence. You were one of the youngest members of the Lesbian Caucus, which was formed after Harvey Milk's assassination. You headed up the mayor's office. Ah, <laughs> and there's still so much more. Let's start with with San Francisco in the 70s and with you as a political organizer. Obviously, during that time, lots of queer people were mobilized to be political and to be out. Uh, But in your own words, you know, what was that like for you? It was a really vibrant movement. I mean, it was, listen, it was still, it's scary today. It was scary in 1975 to come out. I was in the field of education. I thought they'd never let me in a school again. Um, But there also were, there was tremendous energy 
about being out, particularly um, as a progressive lesbian. And, that, you know, as the attack started on the gay community, Anita Bryant and John Briggs, and then later with HIV AIDS, um, the communities changed. I think the thing that was most striking to me was the gulf or the gap between the gay men's community and the women's community. A lot of us came to the gay LGBT movement out of feminism, out of the women's movement, out of anti-war movements, out of national liberation struggles. Uh, for gay men, it was less true. They tended to be more conservative. They had more money. Um, I remember walking down Castro Street in the late 70s and being spit on and called a dyke by oh. gay men. Oh. And I think it's part of our history as a community that we uh, is not well known that uh, until until a few years into the AIDS crisis, there was real tension between the women's and the gay men's communities. We had different issues, different politics. Um, and I think it was fortunate, you know, the common wisdom is that lesbians stepped up to take care of our gay brothers when when the AIDS epidemic hit. And all of that is true. But the part that is less understood is that we also brought a political analysis to the HIV AIDS struggle that many in the men's community just didn't have. They didn't understand why the government didn't respond. They didn't understand why there was no leadership from the White House. We, um, most of us, um, understood that, expected it, and knew how to organize around it. So what's frustrating to me is we're such an ahistorical society in general, and that we, uh, we tend to lose the nuances of real history and real relationships and the, and the tensions and the ups and downs that happened. You were an organizer of the 1987 LGBT March on Washington. What, I was. What, 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 what were you trying to get out of that, and, and did it work? And you know, did it, Was it what you had hoped it would be? You know, I don't know, I don't know if I knew what I hoped it would be. Uh, I'd been at the 1979 March on Washington, the very first one that happened right after the White Knight Riot. Uh, and we carried banners depicting the White Knight Riot down uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. That was kind of fun. And 78, uh, in 87, we're at the height of the AIDS epidemic. There is no word from the White House. And uh, there was a great need to get a lot of people out in the street. So I agreed to move to Washington for a period of time and be one of the original two paid staff of the march. Um, and my job was to get people there. And we got about three-quarters of a million people there wow. on November 11th, 1987. And it was, it was stunning. And it was, it was I, I was just totally to, stunning. Yeah, I was going to ask about the types of people show, who showed up. I mean, were they all activists or were there, you no. know? No, look, you've got to remember 80, you, I, I don't know how old the two of you are, but in 1987, um, our, we, were, we were in a war. We were in a war for our lives as a community. I, I mean, it's hard to imagine um, now, but you know, so many of the men that I came of age with politically in the 
uh, lesbian gay rights movement in the Bay Area, you know, are gone. And most of them died in that era. And uh, it was scary. And it was hard. And we really did feel like we were fighting for our lives. And there were, you know, we were fighting for a broad set of rights. But HIV AIDS was the centerpiece of the work. And the fact that we could get one presidential candidate, Jesse Jackson, to come to the march and speak and talk about HIV AIDS uh, was incredibly, uh, I don't know what the word is, validating, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just that somebody with somebody outside of our community with power and with influence and with voice was actually listening to us and taking, taking up the issue. Pam, it was a very d- difficult time. Absolutely. Pam, we're going to take a quick break right here, but when we come back, we want to continue our discussion with you. So don't go away, okay? All right. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. More of Pam David. You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Miao Show. listening to the progressive voices network streaming the best in progressive talk 24 7 keep the progressive conversation going on on facebook like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices on the progressive voices facebook page we update the stories that our hosts like tom hartman stephanie miller bill press and leslie marshall will be talking about during their shows and we share great news commentaries opinion pieces and videos from all over the progressive world always progressive always on be part of the progressive conversation like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. It's Michelle Miao. You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome back. Happy holidays. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. And, of course, John Zipper, our good friend, is here from Commonwealth Club. Hello, John. On the phone, uh, and our guest today is Pam David. Uh, We're very honored to have Pam on with us. She's the executive director of the Walter and Elise Haas Fund and has been instrumental in terms of the LGBTQ gay liberation movement, but also an incredible activist and uh, 
a pioneer of of our fight for equal rights. Um, Pam, let's 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 uh, let's you know steer our attention from your time in Washington and then your now your return to San Francisco, uh, in which then you served on the city's domestic partnership task force and you helped craft a landmark policy. What was that policy? It was allowing domestic, allowing city workers to uh, register as domestic partners and for their domestic partners to have benefits. And it was the first municipal law of its kind. Uh, Roberta Actenberg chaired it, and uh, there was a lot of pushback uh, from various sources, uh, particularly all the insurance companies that worked with the city who thought that there'd be this rush of folks, particularly with HIV, to register their partners, and therefore uh, it would cost the city a fortune. And uh, it didn't. Um, And it really, if you think about the whole arc of work that got us to to, uh, marriage equality, the the battle for domestic partnership really uh, was the first to put a stake in the ground. Sorry, go go ahead. ahead. I was just going to ask, during this time in San Francisco where you're actually, you know, working with mayors and such, who were some of the political heroes who who were willing to take on those battles for the LGBT rights? Well, Art Agnos, as the mayor, Mm -hmm. certainly uh, stood up for us very quickly. You know, and what's interesting, when I first moved to San Francisco, it it was a conservative town, you know, and the when we finally got to district elections and Harvey got elected, uh, things started to shift when Roberta and Carol Migdon were both on the board. Uh, and then Tom Amiano, I mean, he started to see um, our own leadership develop and not be dependent on straight politicians supporting us. Um, it's, um, it's interesting that there are, at the moment, no lesbians on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. Yeah, yeah well, have you ever thought about running for... A political you know, office? I mean, because I've worked with politicians a lot, I've thought about it. Yeah. The idea of having to spend all your time raising money and be nice to people you don't really like <laughs> just doesn't appeal to me that much. Uh, yeah. I feel like I feel like I've been able to have a lot of influence on on policy, both in the twelve years I worked for three mayors and uh, and in the foundation world, and that's good enough. I don't need to be an elected official. You did, of course, work as an advisor to uh, Jesse Jackson in his 88 uh, presidential uh, campaign, yeah. which that, was kind of an, a watershed of campaign. Well, that came out of the March on Washington oh, okay. because our the March offices were down the hall from Jesse Jackson's exploratory campaign. Oh, really? And I was I, my title was the National Outreach Coordinator. So literally my first day in Washington, I walked down the hall, I asked to meet with Reverend Jackson. I end up meeting with one of his top staff and say that we want to get his endorsement for the march. Uh, Frank Watkins, who was the staff person, says to me, well, why don't you go write something as if you're Jesse Jackson in support of the march, and then I'll get it to the reverend. So I had I had done local work for Jackson in, in 84, and I had gone to his church in Chicago when I was a teenager, so I knew his rhetorical style, and I went back and on our IBM Selectric typewriter, wrote something out, got it to Frank, he got it to Reverend Jackson, came back the next day with a few edits, and that was our first endorsement from the civil rights community. 
Yeah. And out of that, I build a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Pam, I wanted to ask a, a, a general question. I mean, you know, you started sure. your activism during a time um, of the anti-war movement. And, and it, I don't really know how to describe what the movement is now today. Uh, I mean, there's so much going on uh, politically and globally when it comes to war and violence. Uh, but at the same time, uh, just a few years ago, this country repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell, in which now we celebrate out service members. The queer community, I think, is struggling with its relationship uh, with the military. On one hand, we applaud them for taking progressive steps. On the other hand, I think many of us are still anti-war, or that's our position on, on war. Um, I, I wonder what your perspective is on just you know, the, yeah. On the, on the military, mixed feelings. I don't want anybody I know to go into the military. I know people who've been in the military and are wonderful folks. Um, I think it's a bigger issue, Michelle, around assimilation. Mm-hmm. You know, part of the character of being a lesbian in the 1970s and 80s was being an outlaw, being a sexual outlaw, being a political outlaw, being, being on the edge. You know, and now we're like in the center. Not everywhere in the country and certainly not everywhere in the world, but there's, there's a, you know, we've assimilated to a great extent, which is what this country tends to do to distinct groups of folks. And it's, it's uncomfortable mm-hmm. in many ways mm-hmm. um, of losing our sense of identity. And then in terms of progressive politics, we have the same fights about lesbians and gay men uh, joining the police force in the 70s. The women's building wouldn't allow a small group of women cops to meet in the women's building. Very controversial decision. I can, you know, I can argue it both ways, to be honest. Right. On the one hand, you want good people to be in the military making good decisions about, um, you know, and it's a huge, important employer. It's also been a vehicle for, for racial integration in this country. Um, so it's, it's, it's a mix. I think we just have to be cautious. I, I wanted to follow up on that because, you know, this is not the first time I've heard assimilation being a difficult thing. Do you think that assimilation uh, may negatively impact our community in a sense that we are risking preservation of our own history? You talked about our identity diluting. I mean, does that, does that make you feel uncomfortable about uh, the queer future and our movement at all? You know, every time I go to Creating Change, I don't fear the future at all, <laughs> to be honest. When I'm in a, in a conference with 4,000 uh, totally, totally mixed LGBTQI folks, uh, all, many of them young and full of energy and way, way more thoughtful than I was at that age, uh, then I'm not in doubt at all. But how we, ha- how we help those voices inform the broader politics of our, both our movement and our country, I think that's what's in doubt. You do talk about you know, moving from kind of being an outlaw to the center, and now you're executive director of the Walter and Elise Haas Fund, which is a, I know, I could, a I could very respected. And, <laughs> but, oh, wow, wow. Just give us a bit of a sense of, okay, so what are you doing now? How are you, uh, you know, seeing your ideals and, and uh, 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 
you know, the things you, that matter most to you work through this new organization, not new organization, but through this role? Well, you know, when I worked for government, I got to manage the Community Development Block Grant, and it was essentially being a funder of the nonprofit communities, mm -hmm. particularly in low-income neighborhoods. And so I knew the nonprofit sector, and I knew grant-making, and when I uh, when, when this opportunity came up to work for a family with such a long history of supporting community institutions, cultural, educational, uh, social, in, this, in the Bay Area, um, it was, it was it's a great opportunity. I have wonderful staff. I have great trustees. We try to do work that um, is meaningful and real and supports um, supports the great nonprofit infrastructure that we've created in this in the Bay Area. Uh, it's got its contradictions. Every job does, uh, but uh, obviously there's something that's been very meaningful about the work. Uh, for the past mm -hmm. 13 years. Mm -hmm. I plan to be there about two more. Yeah. <laughs> Pam, I have a, a last question for you. Unfortunately, we are running out of time, although I really, really hope that you'll come back on the program um, because you're, you're you're so incredible. But my last question to you has to do with the fact that you're, you've also served as advisor to Open House and in mm -hmm. talking about LGBT senior life and the issues that um, impact the queer senior community today, um, you know, what are some lasting or last words or thoughts around our aging community and, and maybe what we're doing, what we're not doing, what we need to be mindful of? Well, I'm totally grateful for Open House uh, and the fact that it has raised the issue of aging in our community. I mean, it's not just our community that's aging. The baby, we're all of us baby boomers are in our 60s now and um, redefining uh, redefining being older. I know that the title of this was something about elders, and I'm like, no, I'm not an elder. <laughs> but but it's okay, you know, as long as, long as I understand what it means to me. And in terms of open house, both the housing and the services and the way that we get to age in community is going to be so important. We have to move away from a society that throws people at the ages of 65 or 70 to the side. We need to figure out how to mine and provide places and spaces for a lot more intergenerational work and to, and to retain the history and the connectivity and the relationships that those of us who are six-plus decades old have been able to acquire. Uh, to just throw us to the side would be such, such a loss. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have, we're, you know, we're going to have different kinds of needs in terms of community. We're not going to go off and play golf in Palm Springs. Some people <laughs> will. But right. a lot of us want to, we've been part of community. We want to stay in community. And that's the promise of Open House. And that's why I've been so supportive of them since it was an idea right. in, uh, in the heads of Jeanette and Marcy. Pam, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing a piece of yourself with us. Well, thank you for having this program and having to focus on, on older LGBT folks. And thanks so much for your work. Thank you. Happy holidays, everyone. Don't forget about everyone in our community. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Don't forget that John Zipper hosts the week-to-week -week political roundtable talk that happens every Friday at 4 o'clock on the Progressive Voices Network. We'll see you tomorrow.